Greetings, Progateers, and welcome to Is This Prog, an all-new podcast series from the creative minds behind Desert Island Dicks, Keep Talking, and The Revelation Station. In each episode, I'll be listening to a different album and asking the question, Is This Prog? Welcome back to Is This Prog with me, Mr. Monday. So far in this series, we've listened to albums by some of the biggest names in music, and in the 70s, there were none bigger than Led Zeppelin. Although they only recorded between 1968 and 1978, they managed to dominate the rock scene and leave an indelible mark on music history. They are largely credited with creating heavy metal and have sold an estimated 200 to 300 million records worldwide. But who are Led Zeppelin? Led Zepp, as they are often known, were formed from the ashes of the UK blues band The Yardbirds, a band which had also included Eric Clapton and Jeff Beck amongst its past members. In 1968, the band effectively split up, but had commitments in Scandinavia, which Jimmy Page, the guitarist at the time, was given permission to fulfil. Under the name The New Yardbirds, Page recruited bassist John Paul Jones, and he wanted singer Terry Reid to complete the lineup. When Terry Reid declined, Page instead asked Robert Plant to take the vacant spot. Plant readily agreed and suggested John Bonham join on drums. They played 14 dates across Denmark, Sweden and Norway before heading to the Olympic Recording Studios in London the day after the tour ended. That debut album took only nine days to record and mix with Beatles producer Glyn Johns, although by the time the album was completed, they were ordered to stop using the name The New Yardbirds. They'd apparently only had permission to use it for the Scandinavian tour. Now, there are several apocryphal tales have been told about how the name Led Zeppelin came about, but generally it's believed to have come from Keith Moon and John Entwistle of The Who, saying that the band would go down like a lead balloon. But however it happened, an iconic name was coined. They released that self-titled first album in January 1969, and it went on to sell over 10 million copies worldwide to date, with 8 million of those in the USA alone. It was swiftly followed by Led Zeppelin II in October 1969, which sold 12 million copies in the USA by 1999. Both of those two albums featured a blues rock style, with several blues standards covered by the band. For their third album in 1970, they adopted a more gentle and acoustic approach alongside the rock riffs of tracks like Immigrant Song and Celebration Day, which they continued on their fourth untitled album in 1971. Four more albums followed in the 1970s, with the band becoming one of the biggest live bands of all time, regularly playing to packed stadiums. They took a two-year break from touring in 1975 after Robert Plant and his wife were involved in a car accident. They resumed touring in 1977 with the biggest audience ever for a single-act show to that date at the Pontiac Silverdome in Michigan, which drew an incredible 76,229 attendees. Following that, they played to 104,000 people at the first of two dates at Nebworth in 1979, and in 1980 they were booked for a North American tour scheduled to begin in October of that year. On the 24th of September, they began rehearsals, but unfortunately, after a heavy day of drinking, drummer John Bonham was found dead from asphyxiation, having choked on his own vomit overnight. His death was found to be accidental, and despite rumours of a replacement, the band ultimately decided not to carry on without him. 
Since then, there have been several reunions, including a disastrous appearance at Live Aid. Page and Plant reunited for a couple of albums, and the band were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1995, but the possibility of a full-on reunion tour has been largely ruled out. Led Zeppelin remain one of the most influential rock bands of all time. As well as heavy metal, they have also been credited with creating the album-orientated rock, or AOR, movement, with their refusal to release singles, and also with being the first band to sell out stadiums on their name alone. Without Led Zeppelin, we wouldn't have had Deep Purple, Guns N' Roses, Soundgarden or Muse, and the music world would have been a lesser place for it. In 1970, the band had toured extensively promoting Led Zeppelin III and were already garnering a reputation as one of the best live bands in the world. They decided to take a break from touring to focus on writing new tracks and so they decamped to Bronnier, a house in Snowdonia, Wales, to begin the process. They then moved to Island Records Recording Studio in London on December the 5th before once again relocating to Headley Grange in Hampshire in January, where they had recorded their previous album. Headley Grange was a remote location without leisure facilities, which allowed the band to focus on the album and was a popular location in the 1970s. Genesis would later write their final Peter Gabriel era album, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway there. By February, the basic tracks had been completed and Jimmy Page mixed them at Sunset Sound Studios in LA. At a playback at Olympic Studios in London, the band were unhappy with the mixers, and so, after a tour in the spring and summer, they were worked on further, finally being completed in July. There was yet a further delay in the release due to the disagreements on whether it should be a double album or not, and what the cover would consist of. The band wanted nothing at all to indicate that it was a Led Zepp album. They were reacting to the music press claims that the band were all hype and wanted to prove otherwise. They stood their ground and the album officially has no title, although it's sometimes referred to as Led Zeppelin 4, Four Symbols or Zoso, which was the symbol for Jimmy Page on the album. There's no text on the front or the back cover. Now that album cover itself is a photograph of a painting hanging on the wall of a dilapidated building, the Salisbury Tower in Ladywood, Birmingham. The painting of the old man was purchased by Robert Plant from an antique shop in Berkshire. The idea behind the cover was that it would show the contrast between city and country and would be a reminder to look after the earth. It was later chosen by the Royal Mail to be a stamp in 2010 as part of their classic album series, and it was recently in the news after having been rediscovered after being lost for a while. The record was finally released on the 8th of November 1971 to overwhelming praise from critics. Led Zeppelin III had been met with a lukewarm response with its change of sound, but Untitled saw the band really find their feet and mix the blues rock and acoustic styles together effectively. The track Stairway to Heaven became a huge radio hit, despite the band refusing to release it as a single, and it regularly tops the list of greatest rock songs of all time. The album itself was also a huge commercial success, reaching number one in the UK and Canada, and number two in the USA, Australia, Italy and Japan. To date, it has sold over 30 million copies worldwide, making it one of the best-selling albums of all time. It laid the foundations for the rest of the band's output and moved them firmly out of the shadow of the Yardbirds. 1971 was a stone-cold classic year for prog rock, starting in February with the breakthrough third album by Yes, the Yes album, and a second release from Barclay James Harvest, once again. In fact, 1971 would be the year of second albums with classics from Uriah Heep, Salisbury, ELP, 
Tarkus, Supertramp, indelibly stamped, Gentle Giant, Acquiring the Taste, Can, Tago Mago, and Curved Air, second album, among many others. Fans of my other podcast, The Revelation Station, will know that Genesis released their third album, Nursery Crime, in November, which was the first to feature Phil Collins and Steve Hackett, cementing the lineup that went on to phenomenal success only a few years later. Labelmates Vandergraaf Generator released Porn Hearts in October, and uh, incidentally, the music I use as a theme is by Vandergraaf Generator, a cover of a George Martin composition, Theme One, which was recorded as part of the Porn Hearts sessions. Pink Floyd released their sixth album, Metal, and King Crimson issued their fourth, Islands. We also got the debut albums by the Electric Light Orchestra and Jade Warrior. Jade Warrior would go on to release another album before the end of the year, as would many of the other acts I've already mentioned. ELP put out pictures at an exhibition. Barclay James Harvest would tell us and other stories, but surely the crown goes to Yes, who released the magnificent Fragile a mere nine months after the Yes album. There are more bands and albums than I've been able to mention. Like I said, 1971 was a classic year for prog rock. So before we find out whether all that glitters is gold, let's remind ourselves of my rules of prog. 1. Do the songs contain meaningful lyrics, perhaps in the form of a story? Has the artist created music which is complex or experimental? 3. Does the album contain songs which are over 5 minutes in length? 4. Has the artist used new technology or techniques to enhance the listening experience? So I'm going to be a bit radical right now and break the format of the show a little. An attempt to be progressive myself, you might say. But anyway, I'm going to start this review by saying I don't think this is a prog album. I'm sure there are some of you listening who are thinking, well, duh, of course it isn't. Led Zepp 3 is much more progressive. And by way of explanation, I'm going to admit that I don't really know Led Zeppelin 3 as well as I know this one. When it came to choosing the albums for this first run of episodes... I wanted records I was pretty familiar with already. Last episode's album Zuluk is one that I've listened to since I was a teenager first getting into music, as was Queen 2 the week before that. Abbey Road is a record I've got into more recently. I was always a fan of the Beatles pop songs back in the day. Um, I had a Beatles ballads compilation on rotation, but that was it. I was never into the albums. Led Zeppelin are a band I've only ever been into in a minor way. 
There are tracks on all their albums I love, but apart from the first two albums and this one, I'm not really all that into the band. And it might sound obvious, but I don't think of them as a prog band, which is one of the reasons they're featured in this episode, I guess. They 100% definitely have prog songs, Kashmir, to name but one, but none of their albums can wholly be said to be prog. The opening track of this album, Black Dog, which you've just heard, doesn't push the band into any new territory. The song opens with that iconic piece of blues call and response, Robert Plant's vocals interacting with the music in classic Led Zeppelin style. I'd say that interplay is one of the most interesting things about that track, mimicking, as it does, Oh Well by Fleetwood Mac. The guitar riff that runs through the song is also seemingly very straightforward, but on closer listen it actually repeats and changes throughout, producing a much more complex sound than you would initially think. But that being said, it wouldn't feel out of place at all on their first three albums, and because of that, doesn't really feel like the band are stretching themselves or their musicianship. We don't hear anything really proggy until the third track on the album, Evermore takes a turn towards acoustic folk, with Plant's delicate vocals accompanied by mandolin and flute. Whilst Led Zeppelin 3 played with acoustic songs and instrumentation, this track is quite another beast altogether. However, the only obvious change is the ethereal voice of Sandy Denny, the only other vocalist to feature on a Led Zeppelin album, who provides the voice of the people to Robert Plant's narration. The music flows and changes within as it reacts to both voices. Listen, I'm not explaining it well because, as I've said before, I'm not a musician. But to my ears, it sounds more like a folk song than a pop song. So for me, it meets the criteria of my new rule number two. Combine that with a fantasy lyric and a runtime of more than five minutes, and this is a prog song without a doubt. And there we immediately have the issue with the album. It's got some prog song but it also still has one foot in the blues rock of the first two albums. Let's be honest, Between Black Dog and Battle of Evermore is one of the classic rock songs of all time, rock and roll.
has that iconic drum intro which, let's be honest, is probably responsible for inspiring the formation of hundreds of bands all by itself. But the song itself is a full-on boogie, rock and roll all night party song. It has some great sounding rock and roll piano playing along with the guitar, courtesy of Ian Stewart of the Rolling Stones, which adds some layer of sound to it. But ultimately, it's a standard rock and roll song. It's another one that could easily have fitted on any of the previous three albums, and the same could be said of Misty Mountain Hop. is another boogie and even has that piano playing along with the guitar again. It's a lot more subdued than the first two tracks on the album. It's not particularly complex, but it is taking an existing sound and making something slightly different of it. That may be because the lyrics are about a rally to legalise pot in London 1968, so that laid-back sound could be a deliberate attempt to mimic someone who's stoned, perhaps. That less intense sound is evident on other tracks on the album. Going to California, for example, is very much in that pastoral prog tradition of early Genesis or even Nick Drake. To find a queen without a king They say she plays guitar and cries and sings La 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 Ride a white man in the footsteps of dawn Trying to find a woman who's never, never, never been born Standing on the hill in the mountain of dreams Telling myself it's not as hard, hard, hard as it But the artist it most sounds like is Joni Mitchell, and there does seem to be a reference in the lyrics to her song I Had a King from her debut album. Either that or Robert Plant just wanted to get one more reference to a fantasy queen in. So again, another potential prog track. There's a really clear line on this album as well. There are straightforward rock songs that are based on the blues tradition that the band were known for, and then there are the acoustic tracks, which flirted with folk and prog to create what was a new sound for them. They aren't afraid to experiment, which puts them in the prog camp, but they aren't prepared to fully commit. Unlike Queen 2, where it was obvious Queen could easily have gone full prog, Zepp seemed content to play both sides, like I said earlier, they have definite prog songs, but no full-on prog albums. 
Take the track Four Sticks, John Bonham uses four drumsticks, hence the name of the song, to create an interesting sound. Listening closer, it has a repeated guitar loop, which is quite innovative for the time, and it also uses a synthesizer. It almost feels like a mini-epic, despite being under five minutes long. But is it prog? I think out of all the tracks on this album, this is the hardest one to judge. On the one hand, it's a lament. Lyrics that seem to be about having to leave someone, which are fairly standard for a blues song. It's under five minutes long, but it does use new sounds and instruments to create a more complex, layered track than you would at first expect. But it sounds like a Led Zeppelin track, and it could be on any of their first three albums without sounding out of place. It's an interesting contradiction of using new sounds and techniques to create a song that doesn't really sound any different to anything they've already made. Not that I think it's a bad song. It's not. It just isn't a prog song. And on that note, come on, let's talk about the elephant in the room. Honestly, do I really need to go over this one? Really? Okay, fine. So first off, it's a story song about a character, the lady, who seems to be of the opinion she can buy anything. This is reminiscent of White Queen from Queen 2, although of course this song came first, in that we don't get any real concrete details about the lady. It's more of a character study. The lyrics offer a sense of mystery and intrigue, inviting listeners to intuit their meaning. While the song's exact meaning remains open to interpretation, it touches upon themes of spirituality, transformation and the search for meaning in life. I've researched this song as part of this review and there are as many interpretations as there are cover versions. Robert Plant himself said that he interprets the song in many different ways and puts its popularity down to its abstract nature. It certainly has a fantasy element to it. It turns from that straightforward comment on capitalism to talking songbirds and forests on fire. I prefer to think of it as a fantasy story with no real meaning in a traditional prog style. Think close to the edge rather than a story-driven piece like 2112. The track seamlessly blends elements of hard rock, folk and classical music, defying traditional genre boundaries. The song's opening section evokes a folk-like atmosphere with its gentle acoustic guitar and recorder accompaniment. 
As the song progresses, it incorporates elements of hard rock, with Jimmy Page's powerful guitar riffs and John Bonham's driving drums. The final section features a majestic guitar solo that showcases Page's virtuosity and classical influences. The song's dynamic shifts and extended sections provide ample space for instrumental exploration, further solidifying its progressive credentials. It follows on well from the Battle of Evermore, and perhaps we're getting another Tolkien reference here, with the lady shining white like Galadriel in the woods of Lothlorien. But it doesn't really matter what I say here. I think it's prog. You think it's prog. We all think it's prog. I don't think that's ever been in doubt. So let's turn to the very last track on the album, When the Levy Breaks. first thing I want to say about this track is how timeless I think it sounds. By avoiding the heavy crashing drums, it creates a song that could have come from any part of the 1970s and also the early 80s. I think part of that is the use of the harmonica, which I know is not purely an 80s thing, but the way it sounds here is different from something like Lazy by Deep Purple, for example. Here, it's used more as a lead instrument than an additional sound in the mix, and it's doing a lot of heavy lifting in this song. Jimmy Page's guitar takes a bit of a backseat, which is an interesting approach and quite different from the guitar excesses that their live work would have become known for. That and egos, of course. Another interesting aspect of the music is that the guitar and bass tend to be one chord, which creates that distinct drone feel to the song. Of course, that's the opposite to most prog music, which, you know, come to think of it, maybe the fact that it's playing against that means it is prog. I mean, it is over five minutes long, after all. A technique they've used here was to slow down some of the instruments, particularly the guitar and harmonica, to create a more sludgy, grungy sound. A similar technique was used by the Beatles on the song Rain, with the drums slowed down to create a dreamlike sound. Cribbing from the best there, eh, Led Zeppelin? The lyrics are also telling a story, which I originally thought, were about the Great Depression of the 1920s. There seems to be some reference which suggests moving to another town and looking for a job. In fact, this is a cover of a country blues song by Memphis Minion Kansas Joe McCoy about the Great Mississippi Flood of 1927, which covered 27 square miles in 30 feet of water. 
It's estimated that 500 people were killed and 630,000 were directly impacted by the floods. With that in mind, I still have to say I think this is the best track on the album. Don't get me wrong, I like the more popular ones. There's nothing bad about them. And I always enjoy Stairway to Heaven. But this song is something special. The whole thing comes together perfectly to create a cohesive track that rounds off the album very nicely indeed. This fourth album by Led Zeppelin is not just a collection of great songs. It's a complete work of art with a carefully crafted sequence and a cohesive sonic palette. The album's production, courtesy of Jimmy Page, is impeccable, capturing the raw energy of the band's live performances while adding subtle layers of texture and atmosphere. But is this prog? Like I said earlier, no, it's not in my opinion. While not exclusively a prog rock album, this incorporates elements of experimentation, extended compositions and a diverse range of musical styles blurring the lines between hard rock and progressive rock territories. There are undoubtedly tracks which tick off my prog rules. Stairway to Heaven is a prime example with its gradual build-up, diverse sections and lengthy guitar solo, showcasing the band's ability to create musically complex and engaging pieces. But equally, several tracks, such as Black Dog, Rock and Roll and Four Sticks, adhere to traditional rock structures featuring concise verses, choruses and solos. This emphasis on concise songwriting aligns more closely with hard rock conventions than the often sprawling and multi-section compositions found in progressive rock. But I have to make a choice. Short of creating another rating of neither... I've got to go with my gut feeling. And whilst this fourth album incorporates progressive elements that showcase the band's versatility and willingness to experiment, the album's overall structure, songwriting approach and musical emphasis align more closely with hard rock and heavy metal. The presence of progressive influences doesn't mean this album isn't a hard rock masterpiece. It solidifies Led Zeppelin's status as pioneers of the genre. It stands as a testament to the band's ability to expand the boundaries of hard rock, whilst at the same time retaining their signature sound and identity. It's a good album. Some would argue their best, but it falls short of being full-on prog. My verdict, not prog. Why not let me know if you agree or disagree with my verdict at revelationstationpodcast at gmail.com. You can also send me some suggestions for other albums to cover. Thanks to everyone who sent me messages and suggestions so far. Keep them coming. I'm planning on using those in the next run of episodes. In the meantime, thanks for listening and join me in my next episode when I'll be talk talking about the spirit of Eden. Thank you for listening to Is This Prog from the Revelation Station. Presented, written and produced by Simon Helper. All music is copyright the respective artists. If you've enjoyed it, please consider buying or streaming. Send your album or rule suggestions, or just your thoughts on the episode, to revelationstationpodcast at gmail.com. You can support this podcast by subscribing on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash revelationstationpodcast 
or for a less long-term commitment, you can donate the price of a coffee by heading to buymeacoffee.com and searching for the Revelation Station. This has been a Revelation Station production. Any questions? Yes. Question, Mr. Monday.